It is five o'clock, of course it is. It's Wednesday the 8th of March, 2023. Welcome to Richie Allen Show. The Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen. Lovely to have you on board as usual. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, I've got a terrific program lined up for you today a little bit later on. In fact, in the second hour, Isabel Vaughan Spruce will be on the program. Isabel is the director of March for Life. And she has made the headlines this week and even late last year. She was arrested on Monday... She is an anti-abortion campaigner. She was praying outside an abortion clinic and was arrested for breaching a public space protection order. I'm looking forward to meeting Isabel and chatting with her about that. She joins me in the second hour of the show. Before that, David Sedgwick is back. Lovely to welcome David back to the programme. He's an academic and author, and he's written several very good books about the history of the BBC. His most recent one is entitled, Is That True?, or did you hear it on the BBC? And I want to talk to Gary Lineker, BBC impartiality and much more with David. So great that he agreed to come back on. That's Wednesday's programme. If you would like to contribute yourself by making a comment, do so by my website, via my website, richieallen.co.uk. It couldn't be simpler. It says comment live on the menu bar or live comment, I can't remember. Either way, happy International Women's Day, ladies. And I do mean ladies, the real ones. Uh, that's a bit cheap, fair enough. Eddie Izzard, the comedian. That's, I don't know, trades description act. Did Eddie Izzard ever say anything funny? Well, he might have said the funniest thing he ever said in his life yesterday. He wants to be known as Susie. He told Sky News that he has wanted to be called Susie since childhood. Is <laughs> yeah. the absolute state of him. Yeah, my God, that's probably the funniest thing he's ever said. Tough to look at that. Tough to look at. Sky News referring to him as she makes me laugh as well. And it's unkind and we're supposed to be above this sort of childishness. But I can't help but look at Eddie Izzard and think that he belongs in a 19th century tent, doesn't he? He belongs in a tent in the 19th century, somewhere around third or fourth billing, maybe Lobster Boy, maybe at the top, the woman with the beard, maybe Lionel, the lion-faced man. Roll up, folks. It's the greatest freak show on earth. And then roll out uh, the boy named Susie just before Wang the Unicorn. By the way, Wang the Unicorn, the woman with four legs, Lobster Boy, Lionel, the lion-faced man, and the woman with the beard were genuine attractions in the late 19th century on the freak show circuit. They were. Those were real ones. And a boy named Susie. Yeah, we've got plenty of freak shows now. And they're not trans women either, or trans men, or anybody else. It's, it's the political class in this country, freak shows. Like Rishi Sunak. Did you see the state of the press conference yesterday? Rishi has a new slogan. It's called Stop the Boats. So this week, the UK media has been obsessed with people arriving in the UK on small boats. Very dangerous crossings coming across the channel, right? Some of these people on, on the small boats, maybe most of them, are 
economic migrants, young men, of course there will always be genuine people fleeing genuine you know, oppression. But it's uh, one of those issues that regularly trips up political parties in power. What to do with uncontrolled immigration. So you will remember slogans like get Brexit done and stuff like that and save the NHS during the COVID nonsense. Yesterday, Rishi Sunak stood in front of a big sign emblazoned, stop the boats. Now, I know you won't believe this, but uh, not a word of a lie. I was phoned by the Conservative Party, the, the, the National Conservative Party, and I was asked, because of my radio experience, could I possibly come up with a song or a jingle to help Rishi Sunak convince the public that he really means it this time and that he wants to stop the boats. Now, I thought it was a wind-up. Nobody in politics would ring me up, despite my many years of radio experience, I thought it's got to be a wind-up, but it actually was. It was the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, Lee Anderson, phoned me up and he said, we have a new slogan, Richie, it's called Stop the Boats. Can you write a song for Rishi? And I said, what do you mean? He said, we want you to write the song that Rishi can sing. And I said, right, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, I'll mock up a quick song and I'll send it over to you for Rishi to, to learn and to record himself. And it's to go with the new Stop the boat's slogan. This is all I could come up with. I did my best. So I'd like to know where you got the notion, you dirty shower of Albanian freeloaders. Stop the boat, let's stop the boat, baby. Stop the boat, let's tip the boat over. Stop the boat, let's drown the motherfuckers. Right, right. That last bit, Michael Gove suggested that last bit there. Tip the boat over and let's... whatever. So yeah, so I don't know whether they'll take it up or not. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Stop the boat, Rishi Sunak. Let's move swiftly on. If Ofcom is looking for a reason to regulate the independent media, I might have just given them one there. If you're brand new to the programme, there's no point in me even trying to distance myself from what I just did there. Anyway, here, to, to more important matters, the Telegraph columnist Alison Pearson has called for the former Health Secretary Matt Hancock to be arrested for willful misconduct in public office. Now, today, in her regular column in The Telegraph, she summarised the revelations contained in Hancock's WhatsApp messages. You know by now, he gave his WhatsApp communications, 100,000 of them and more, to the journalist Isabel Oakshot while she was writing his memoirs, his lockdown memoir. She handed them to The Telegraph and they've been running with it ever since. So, so she summarised some of the things that Hancock is revealed to have done, revealed through his own messages, like um, mooting using COVID variants to scare people into changing their behaviour, like gleefully plotting to frighten the pants off everyone, that's a quote, to ensure lockdown compliance, uh, threatening MPs that their constituency wouldn't receive certain necessary funding if they continue to be sceptical about lockdown, see James Daly, lying repeatedly, Hancock, about the pressure pressures even COVID was bringing on the NHS. He, 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 he briefed newspapers on a daily basis that hospitals were collapsing under the weight of COVID cases, but this wasn't true because the messages reveal that he knew from day one there was no likelihood 
that hospital capacity would run out and he even offered beds to French and Italian COVID patients. So he was lying through his teeth day in and day out. And Alison Pearson of The Telegraph thinks he might have just broken the law and has asked the question today, is there grounds, are there grounds for a prosecution of him for misconduct in a public office. It's an interesting one. I picked it up and ran with it on richieallen.co.uk. Forgive my own vocals, by the way. I'm still suffering the dreaded lurgy, but anyway. And England's chief medical officer, Chris, Chris Whitty, told the government, again, this is emerging from the WhatsApp leaks, right? Whitty, the chief medical officer for England, told the government back in February 2020 that COVID wasn't serious enough to warrant fast-tracking vaccines. How interesting, sehr interessant, as the uh, Germans might say. Uh, Dominic Cummins came to Whitty and said the Israelis are planning to inoculate the entire population. This is before any lockdown now. At the time, Whitty said a COVID jab couldn't be fast-tracked because the virus had a low mortality rate. Now, you and I know what happened after that. They inflated the death figures. How? Well, they came up with the wonderful idea of adding to the death numbers anyone who died within a 30-day period of testing positive for COVID. So if you were a window cleaner and you leaned to the right because the woman next door was taking her brassiere off and you fell off that ladder and broke your head wide open on the ground... But two weeks previous, you tested positive for COVID. You went on the COVID death numbers. That's no exaggeration. Right? Whitty told them, COVID isn't serious enough to warrant fast-tracking a jab and taking risks with people's health. These are, you know, things that are emerging and have been emerging in the last few days as The Telegraph continues to drip-feed content from Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages to a salivating public. What does it mean, dear listener? Will it amount to anything? More than a hill of beans? Tell me, it's richieallen.co.uk. Wednesday is Prime Minister's Question Time. Miriam Cates, who is a Conservative Party MP, had this to ask of her Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Graphic lessons on oral sex, how to choke your partner safely, and 72 genders. This is what passes for relationships and sex education in British schools. Across the country, children are being subjected to lessons that are age-inappropriate, extreme, sexualising and inaccurate, often using resources from unregulated organisations that are actively campaigning to undermine parents. This is not a victory for equality, it is a catastrophe for childhood. Will my right honourable friend honour his commitment to end inappropriate sex education by commissioning an independent inquiry into the nature and extent of this safeguarding scandal. Very good question from Miriam Cates. Will you order an independent inquiry into what is going on in primary schools and what children are being subjected to? What did Sunak say in response? 
Can I say I, I share my honourable friend's concerns and thank her for her work in this area. Uh, that's why I've asked the Department for Education to ensure that schools are not teaching inappropriate or contested content in RSHE. Our priority should always be the safety and well-being of children and schools should also make curriculum content and materials available to parents. Uh, as a result of all of this, we are bringing forward a review of RSHE statutory guidance and we'll, and we'll start our consultation as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, Sunak would not commit to an independent inquiry, which would mean witnesses would be called and asked to give testimony under oath. He said we will have a review, which means uh, squat, diddly squat, it doesn't mean anything. We need to know the names of those who think it's appropriate for young children to learn about choking during sexual intercourse. We need to know the names of those who put drag queens in primary schools and let drag queens speak to little girls about skin grafts that could be taken from their arms and moulded into penises should they decide that they're not little girls, you know, in reality, and that in reality they're in fact men. Who made these decisions? An inquiry might get to the bottom of that, although, listen, I'm not naive. Like, we, we wouldn't be putting much store, much truck, much faith in an inquiry. But a review? Give over, Rishi Sunak. It's richieallen.co.uk. Comment live. Drop me a message, a comment during the programme. You just wouldn't put up with it, would you, if you had a young child in school? International Women's Day mentioned already. Happy International Women's Day, ladies. There was a bit of an argument on GB News today between Emma Webb, don't ask me, but a regular contributor, whoever she is, and Narinder Carr. Now, Narinder is formerly of Big Brother and is often found on panel shows these days. Andrew Tory Boy Pierce is presenting on GB News with Bev Turner, and he said of J.K. Rowling, the, the great Harry Potter author, he said she's a great woman. She's a great woman. But Narinder Kaur, formerly of Big Brother, is having none of that. She's not a great woman. No, I don't think she, she is. is. I think she's coming across she, as a bit hateful, no, actually. I think she's fantastic. And I and think she's, she's picking so all of... many children to reading books. Fantastic. Yeah, that bit is great, and that is great, and, and that is great that she did do that, but to be picking on not trans picking on women, a very small... And she, they're not invading my space. I welcome them to my space. Who said they're going to do anything in my space? I'll tell you no. what happened to me, then. On okay. a Women's Day a few years ago. I was due to speak at two legal firms about the challenge of being a working mother and at the time I was working with pregnant women and couples having babies, blah, blah, blah. And there was a trans person within one of the offices of that legal firm. And I had retweeted an article from the Daily Mail written by Graham Linehan. Graham Linehan. Graham Linehan. But we'll allow you away with it. Yeah, Brit. Okay, so she was giving a speech at a law firm, Bev Turner, uh, yet, sadly for her, the law firm had a trans employee, and the trans employee noted that Bev Turner had retweeted a Graham Linehan article. About what? And it was about women-only spaces. And because I had retweeted an article from a national newspaper that this one trans person disagreed with, I got cancelled. 
on International Women's Day. You're yeah. going to make it up. Talking at two legal <laughs> Intolerance. You so got cancelled by the trans community. No, I got cancelled by the legal firm because they were so frightened of the one trans person mm. in their office who said he, 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 she, I don't actually know which way they transitioned, had taken this to the board. I'd say that's, but I'd say that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an example, and I'm sorry that you went through that, but I still feel that the actual general public going against trans is actually quite awful. And the general public going against trans? I don't see any of that. And it's just too... And it's uh, not nice, Emma. It, Emma, J.K. Rowling, I think she's an, an heroic, I, brave figure. I agree. And we're living in a society that increasingly refers to biological women by their biological parts, cervix havers, referring to, as we saw recently um, in, a, in a children's textbook, referring to a woman's breast as, I think it was, um, fat lumps. You know, mm. this is extremely dehumanising. We're also living in a culture that doesn't really, within the, the arts particularly, show many positive portrayals of womanhood and, and motherhood. Um, but then and that's I, not the I, fault of trans people. I'm not suggesting that's, that it is, not but I'm saying fault. that when when we're talking about International Women's Day, I think that it's very easy, same with Black History Month, as Morgan Freeman pointed out in 60 Minutes, that it's very easy for us to become tokenistic about this. But actually, there are, whatever Narinda says, there are women, myself included, who feel that they are being marginalised yeah. by the way that language is being butchered to the detriment of biological women and to the detriment of sex-based rights. And, and J.K. Rowling is standing up for that, yes. and I think she should be lauded for I it. I think it's middle-class Caucasian women who seem to have a problem with this because this is their problem. Finally, they've got something to, to feel that they're suffering and that they're challenged in society because they've had nothing else. And I think this is their <laughs> way of feeling they've got this. But, 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 Suddenly Narinda, they've got a cause. Narinda, honey, I was born in Dagnum. You can't call me a working <laughs> yes. middle-class woman. Middle class. I wasn't <laughs> saying you, but I do think that it is a middle-class uh, Caucasian woman problem because suddenly they've got something to fight about. Ah, it's a middle-class Caucasian women's problem, this trans stuff, says a woman who was on Big Brother. 17 and a half minutes past the hour. It's Wednesday's Richie Allen Show. Lots of comments coming in. David Sedgwick on the show shortly. And a little bit later on, I'm looking forward to, uh, to meeting Isabel Vaughan Spruce, who is making headlines and has made headlines this week and uh, this year and last year. Um, she has gone to stand outside an abortion clinic or near it and to pray uh, she's the director of March for Life she's been arrested a few times uh, for refusing to move uh, they, they say she's breached a public space protection order which is a buffer zone put in place to protect women attending these abortion clinics from being harassed but it doesn't look to me at all and maybe I shouldn't say this because I'm not supposed to be coming down on one side or the other, but it didn't look to me at all like Isabel was harassing anybody. It looked to me like she was exercising her human right, civil right, to be outdoors, you know, to be standing wherever she chooses to stand and to pray. But she comes across a very interesting, very articulate lady. We'll have a chat with Isabel a bit later on. Before that, we'll talk about the BBC. We won't get so much, too much into the whole Gary Lineker thing, but you will know that Gary Lineker who presents Match of the Day for the BBC. He's a very well-paid guy, which the press likes to impress upon, upon us all, the, all of the time, just how much he gets paid. As if that matters. It doesn't matter to me. Good luck to the chap if he can squeeze one and a half million pounds or more a year out of the BBC for sitting on a sofa and introducing a football match. I can get a child from second form 
at St. Canis's Primary School in Manchester. A child with, with autism. A child, I don't know, I can get a, a problem child. And within 10 minutes, teach them how to read an autocue. It's very easy. Welcome to Match of Today. Coming up, Leeds against Liverpool. Followed by Manchester United versus Southampton. First, we're off to... We're off to Stamford Bridge, where Chelsea entertained Tottenham. Your commentary team is Guy Mowbray and Alex Scott. See, it's very easy. And he gets a fortune for doing I know I didn't sound very good doing it. He gets a fortune for that, which winds people up. He's very opinionated as Gary. He's got lots to say. He's a bit woke. I wrote about this on the on the website today, richieallen.co.uk. The thing I find very interesting is that those who scream the loudest against cancel culture, those who scream about the, you know, the never-ending attack on freedom of speech, they're the quickest, at least today anyway, to come out and demand that Gary Lineker is fired by the BBC just because he criticised the UK government's asylum policy, its migration policy. We'll talk about some of that with David Sedgwick in a few minutes' time. David, of course, has written some uh, really interesting books on many a subject, but particularly on the BBC and what it is. So we'll get David on in a few minutes' time. Do keep those messages coming in. It's richieallen.co.uk, richieallen.co.uk, and it's comment live. Uncensored, unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. Hi to Patrizia there, who's put a bit of a limerick. It's more than a limerick, it's a poem on the live comment page. Thank you, Patrizia. Hi to herself. Dory, how are you? Nice to uh, hear from you. Kiki says, Richie, hope you're well. I reckon all the bickering and confusion over gender, religion, ethnicity, war, etc. is just a deliberate attempt to keep everyone distracted. I would agree, Kiki, as more and more people are seeing something nefarious unravelling. Also, the leaked WhatsApp messages never mention midazolam or vaccine injury. Now, this is a very good point, and I mentioned this yesterday. The big story here is midazolam, the ordering of crates of it, lorry loads of it, by the then Health Secretary Matt Hancock. Neil Ferguson talking about sending people home who couldn't go to hospital and giving them a good death. The use of midazolam in hospital, the use of do not resuscitate notices. Will these WhatsApp leaks contain any information about those very important subjects and, of course, vaccine injuries. We'll have to wait and see. I won't hold my breath, though. Hi to Hazy, who says it's a load of hell bollocks, this claim that middle-class women were looking for something to fight over and so they turned their glare on the trans community. I agree with that. Hi to Thomas, who says Hancock saying release the next scariant to scare people should show anyone they knew that's they the government knew there were no uh, there was no virus and the injections themselves are not vaccines they do not benefit anyone's health thank you for your messages peter says happy international women's day to all the ladies no doubt idiots like sam smith and the woke agenda pushers will want it rebranded as international zem day thank you so much for that peter I'm Richie Allen. I'm live at BBG Towers here in Salford. This is the Richie Allen Show for Wednesday, March 8th, 2023. David Sedgwick joins me in a few minutes. Before that, it's an old cover version. 
We like an old cover version every now and then, don't we? You too, Everlasting Love on the Richie Allen Show. The time is uh, 26 minutes past five. Ah, yeah, the uh, live comment is, it, well, it's alive on richieallen.co.uk. It is alive. So Gary Lineker then. Look, there's, there's not much for me to like about Gary Lineker. But that doesn't matter, does it? Lineker likes to opine on Twitter. And there are those who don't like that. They say that as a BBC employee, Lineker should be bound by the BBC's rules of impartiality. I'll pause for three seconds while you laugh yourself silly. Obviously, the BBC is not impartial, right? Uh, what isn't known or what, is li- what, what isn't known very much or what people don't seem to know, God, speak correctly, Richie, is that Lineker isn't employed by the BBC, would you believe? But anyway, it doesn't matter. So he weighed in yesterday afternoon on the government's new proposals on how to deal with, with small boats crossing the channel. And he compared the language used by the current Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, to that which you might hear in 1930s Germany. So everybody went crazy, said he should be fired, he should be sanctioned. The BBC said they would do something about it, they would bring him in and speak to him. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I just thought it was pretty ironic, maybe pretty hypocritical, that lots of those who scream from the rooftops about cancel culture and how terrible it is are some of the very same people calling for Lineker to be sanctioned or to lose his job. Let's welcome back to the show. Uh, Man has been on the programme many times. We love having him on. He is an academic and an author and uh, has written several excellent books about the BBC. His latest is called Is That True or Did You Hear It on the BBC? Delighted. And he stepped in at short notice too to welcome back David Sedgwick to the programme. How are you, David? Hi, Richie. Good evening. Uh, nice to speak to you again. Nice to speak to you. To speak to you nice. Listen, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I doubt you have any more sympathy for Gary Lineker than I do. But um, before we get into the BBC and impartiality, as a human being, if he feels like saying something about a political, uh, I don't know, issue, shouldn't he be entitled to say whatever he wants? Yeah, I mean, in theory... Yes, absolutely, because like yourself, I'm I'm a big fan of of free speech, um, almost like a free speech absolutist. Because once you start to prevent people from speaking, that becomes political, and then you have to ask who who has the power to do that. So yes, in in theory, I'm 100% behind that. Of course, this is slightly complicated with the fact that he is a very high profile presenter for a state broadcaster called the BBC, and he's paid a lot of money by the taxpayer. That complicates this issue somewhat, I think. So it's not quite clear-cut, I don't think. But he isn't employed by the BBC, and there is that issue that we're going to talk about, I suppose, in more detail, that, you know, for me it's laughable that anybody working at the BBC would call Gary Lineker in and say, Gary, (laughs) you you need to observe BBC impartiality rules. Because if I'm Gary, I'm saying, would you like to... You know, demonstrate these impartiality well, rules. You know that there is that too, right? There's that too, but just it, it's almost like a Monty Python sketch. You know, Gary Gary Lineker being summoned to the headmaster's office. Can yeah. you imagine it? I mean, it's not going to happen. That that statement uh, is a classic BBC statement about oh, we're going to have a talk with with him or her. We'll have a talk with them, and you just imagine this this talk taking place, which of course never does take place because the behaviour is always repeated and repeated. And that's why Gary Lineker has been back on to, I think, Twitter this morning, doubling down. So he's basically gone on to Twitter and said, hey, 
I, I, I did what I thought was right. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it very badly here. I only caught the tweet. But basically, he's doubling down, saying, I've got nothing to apologize for, and I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing because he knows it's a farce. The it idea is... of him being chastised is a, is a farce, and it's just the, the typical thing that the BBC roll out at these moments. Do you think now more than ever, it might be possible that the BBC, of course, the BBC is many men and many women. It isn't a single entity. But do you think maybe those at the top of the organisation are concerned that they might be on the verge now of having to go private, having to become you know, a private company that either charges for its services, like they might lose the licence fee. Is that something that's really concerning them? Is that why Is that why they're hanging on to this impartiality? Instead of saying, I'll tell you what, we see the way the wind is blowing. You have GB News, you have LBC, you have Talk TV. There is no journalism. There is commentary. We're going to go that way. No more licence fee. But of course they won't do that. No, I don't think so. Absolutely not. That would be, that would be the death of the BBC as we know it. Because I think... Uh, I'm aware, and I'm certainly sure the BBC hierarchy is aware that if once that licence fee is taken away or rescinded, they're going to lose at least, I would imagine, 50% of their audience. So that, that will never happen. This is, this is a, I would call it a storm in a teacup, and the BBC know how to weather these storms very easily. And uh, a week, probably even less than a week from now, the narrative will have changed, and Gary Lineker will, will no doubt be a little bit quiet for a while, and then he'll come back to doing his political tweets. I mean, he suggested, what was it last year? He suggested that the, the, the Conservative Party were taking donations from Russia. The Conservative Party were funded by Russia. Yeah. There was a furore, there was a furore, a furore about that. And then it died down. This is a typical pattern. And the BBC are, are old enough and wise enough to understand that this will pass like all, all other scandals that the BBC get away with. And the reason for that, Richie, is I've often mentioned in my books, is that they are a mouthpiece of the establishment. Yeah. And the establishment are never going to do anything to upset the BBC apple cart. Not whilst the BBC is pumping out uh, COVID propaganda, uh, Russia-Ukraine propaganda. If it told the truth, then the establishment would take the licence away from it tomorrow. What, what about those who might listen to us now and say, well, isn't it, couldn't it be argued, couldn't it be argued that because Lineker is out there chastising, the government's policies, ridiculing its policy on, 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 on immigration and on other issues, that in fact the BBC is not always a mouthpiece for the establishment and that it's no bad thing if some of its highest, highest paid... I mean, there's a great irony here. Its journalists don't seem to be too concerned about some of the crimes of, um, committed by the government of the day, but one of its sports presenters is out there. Whether he's right or wrong, at least he's challenging the government. So what about those who might say this is proof that the BBC is not always the mouthpiece? Well, I think we've had this, this conversation before. I, yeah. I think we're talking here about political theatre. I mean, don't forget that, yeah, Gary, Gary Lineker is criticising government policy but I think if you look higher up and you look at the UN and its agenda, what Gary Lineker is doing is actually promoting the UN agenda. And that's a bigger umbrella than just 10 Downing Street. I think we, we had this kind of yes. point before, I think. So, yeah, I mean, Gary Lineker and the BBC, they look like they're criticising the government, this, this government. But they are not uh, and never will criticise the UN migration pact and the, the bigger forces that are, that are at play here which are trying to break up national sovereignty. And that's what this really is. If you look at the, the actual, the, the bigger picture, is that Lineker is basically, um, what he's doing is he's promoting mass migration into European countries. That is the aim of 
some very nebulous actors over overarched by the, the United Nations. So that so actually what they're doing is they're actually pro-establishment. The Tory government are just basically the stooges in all of this. So I would I wouldn't read too much into no. that. No, I'm being the devil's advocate. I see yeah, it. I, 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 I see it as you see it. I wonder how much of that agenda would be understood by the likes of Gary Lineker, who, who, who I, I believe probably lives in a bubble. Lineker is articulate, so I'm willing to consider that he might be a reasonably intelligent bloke. But living in a bubble where you're, you're, you're a football guy, you're working for BT Sports, you're working for the BBC, I wonder how much of that has he ever looked at, you know, these agendas which yeah. you've just articulately described there. You know, maybe Lineker doesn't know anything about any of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think again, I think I've, I've mentioned this several times. I think yeah. when you join an, organ, an organisation like that, you, you, you instantly join a culture, a very defined culture, whereby you understand the lay of the land instinctively and intuitively, and you understand how you survive within that, survive and prosper, should I say, within that culture. So, yeah, some, one of the things I sometimes address in my books are, is, is that very question, Richie, which is, do these BBC people and, and presenters who, to my mind, act like propagandists for a, an agenda, how much are they conscious of that and how much are they unconscious? And my, 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 my conclusion to that is that it's a sliding scale. Some of them are very conscious of the agenda that they're pushing. Some of them may have an idea but don't really want to go there because it's about self-protection here. And some of them are completely immune to it because it's kind of like their own political extremism anyway. So I think there's different levels within that organization. Now, Gary Lineker, where does he fit on that sliding scale? I don't know the man. Um, if I was to have an educated guess, I'd say he's one of those that kind of understands what he has to do to survive and prosper and to get his 1.3 million per year. Yeah, fair enough. David Sedgwick is our guest. David has written several books, several books, by the way, but uh, books on the BBC, including Is That True or Did You Hear It on the BBC? Very kindly gave me a copy of that late last year. It's excellent. I do recommend you buy it. Very educational. Funnily oh, enough... Richie, you... Richie, I was just going to say, yeah, I'm currently at work on volume two of that book um, because the BBC is the gift that keeps on giving. I, yeah. was, I was going to return. I used to write motor racing books, I think, as you might know, and I yeah. also used to write um, true crime books. But because I keep writing these BBC books and because, like I said, it's the gift that keeps giving, I can't get away from writing more books about the BBC. So there is another one in the pipeline. Fantastic. I look forward to reading that. And, you, you know, we talked about, you've written about and talked about the, the BBC acting as a gatekeeper for agendas. Mm. Isn't it fascinating how little coverage, now I know this, and I, I ask our listeners to please take my word for this because I'm not making this up. Apart from the BBC News website, which has um, posted a couple of articles in the last week. Neither BBC Radio 5 Live or BBC Radio 4 have given much coverage at all to the information contained in the WhatsApp leaks, which Isabel Oakshot took from Matt Hancock when she wrote his memoir. The leaks, sorry, the, the same messages she passed on to the Telegraph. So our listeners will know the timeline. She worked for Hancock. She got the WhatsApp messages, 100,000, Plus, she then gave them to the Telegraph. They have been, the Telegraph has drip-fed them over the last week or so into the public domain. Very, very suspicious about Hancock being stupid enough to give over 100,000 messages. We might come back to that in a minute. But some of the revelations, nevertheless, have been 
I'm very surprised that they have been allowed to see the light of day, you know, namely mm. that they knew the virus wasn't very serious. They deliberately tried to scare people into compliance, all of these things. But we're back to the BBC. It's kind of like um, see no evil, hear no evil. It's not getting stuck into it. It isn't digging down into it. And it's mm. radio and TV programmes are giving it little or no coverage. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, when the BBC is ignoring something, you can bet your life it's on purpose because don't forget they have tentacles all over. And when there's a big story like that that they're ignoring, there's obviously a very good reason for it. And the reason is always invariably that they are protecting some kind of powerful interest from proper scrutiny. So you have to look at those telegraph releases within that context. And it's, it's something very similar happened um, in this winter just gone with the release of the Twitter files. Um, Matt Taibbi released all those internal communiques from Twitter, which showed how they'd been basically censoring conservatives, Republicans, people who are questioning the COVID narrative as well. And the BBC coverage was virtually zero for that. And when, when they're doing that, when, they're, when, there's, when there's zero coverage on the BBC, it shows that they're in a difficult position and they don't know what to do. And, it, and the, the usual, you can trace that back to, they're trying to protect some kind of powerful interest. So for example, in the Twitter files, they were protecting the Democrats, the Bidens, the links to Ukraine. So you have to ask yourself with what's going on here with the release of the telegraph and what the information they're releasing what are the bbc who who is the, basically the question boils down to this which interests are the bbc trying to protect by not covering the story so big, everyone should ask themselves that question and there are a number i suppose you could you could um throw out a number of interests the big pharmaceutical companies of course but go beyond that again and go to the architects of you know, techno, you know, those who want to build a technocratic society, the Great Reset and, and all of that. David Sedgwick is our guest. Have you yourself been a little startled by some of this stuff, like Chris Whitty? It, mm. It's emerging that Whitty said, COVID is not serious enough to fast-track a vaccine. We know the vaccine was fast-tracked, mm. and we know for a fact now that one in 800 people, which is an enormous number, has had a very serious adverse, um, you know, event happen after taking the jab. So, so, so do you wonder? I mean, you've hinted at this already. Like, how? Why is this being drip-fed? This stuff. I mean, this is important well, information. Um, I, I don't know. I, at this moment in time, I'm, I'm veering towards thinking that Hancock has been chosen to be thrown under the bus. Right. That they know this information is going to come out gradually. We can see that the, the momentum that's building up and the information is coming out. It's, it's a sort of like sticking your finger in a dike if you're pardon the yeah. expression, um, and it's starting to seep out. And I don't know whether it's some kind of preemptive strike whereby, okay, we'll select Hancock as being the hapless, the hapless, rather stupid fellow who just made a few mistakes. Um, I, it's it's going to be much more than that, but I think, I wonder if that's kind of like they're trying to control the narrative before it really, the dam bursts. That that could be it. But I also possibly suspect that th there could be a bigger uh, agenda going on here because I don't think that Oakshot has mentioned the Midazolam no. scandal. And that's been definitely covered up. And I think she got very defensive about that. So that, that's interesting because I think that's the, one of the worst aspects that could have come out. And that, that she's been very careful to protect that. So Hancock is not going to be thrown under the bus that much. That, that makes me think that he's being set up to take a certain amount of flack. And also, I think, possibly the long-term aim of these leaks because don't forget the telegraph was bought and paid for by the government yes during during the crisis so i think there's something along the lines whereby the public are going to be persuaded to think oh we can't allow people like matt hancock to be in control again what happens when the next one comes and don't forget bill gates has predicted that there's going to be another much yeah. worse um pandemic they're going to become regular now 
We used to have them once every 100 years, but according to Bill, Bill Gates and co, they're going to become a normal aspect of real life, of, of modern life. So if we can't trust Matt Hancock, if Matt Hancock and his officials are laughing and bungling and making all kinds of mistakes, then surely we have to go to a, a kind of supranational situation where we have to trust the experts at the WHO. Yes. And I wonder if it's trying to nudge people into thinking governments can't cope. We need a bigger response from the experts rather than the politicians and the experts. And where do we find them? We find them at the WHO, for this example. Is, this is really good stuff, David. And you might be absolutely on the money here. And we know that, um, well, nations are in the process of handing mm. control over pandemic response to the World Health Organization, aren't they? This is happening exactly. right now. Yeah, that's very good because, because that answers another question I was going to ask you which is mm. if they were throwing Hancock under the bus, that wouldn't make much sense because, because the next time they come to us and say, we've got a virus and we need you to lock down, well, the people would say, well, you're just a little boy who cried wolf. You told us last time. But if these guys are out of the picture and all of a sudden it's the World Health Organization. Exactly. Yeah. And also, Richie, um, don't forget, the, the public anger will have nowhere to, to, to no target because politicians can be held accountable you can vote them out of out of office uh, allegedly that that's supposedly the, the punishment although i don't think personally i don't think that's a punishment at all because i think they prosper anyway whether they're in or out of office but let's let's imagine that is the punishment you're supposed to be able to deal out to in a democracy to politicians not so easy to do with the who uh, the who is a totally faceless okay you've got the, the head of it that tedros chap but the rest of them are are anonymous bureaucrats and they won't feel the same wrath and the same heat from the general public as no. national politicians. So it would be a great um, barrier for politicians to say, sorry, guys, it's not us doing this. You'll have to take it up with the WHO, yeah. just as they do with the, the Refugee Convention. One of the biggest uh, get-out clauses for the, for the uh, Conservative administration has been to say, we can't do anything. We're bound. <laughs> You'll have to go and take it up with those guys in Brussels who you don't even know where they live, who they are. You can't even name their faces. You don't even know they are. So don't don't give us any heat, guys. You know the fact we've got millions of migrants coming here every every decade. It's not not our fault. It's a supranational organisation. We've got no jurisdiction over it. And I think that could be a similar thing that they're trying to do with the WHO now and health matters. Yeah, it's interesting. Years ago, when I started doing programmes like this, when Jim Mars was still alive, God rest him. And people like Jim were saying one world government and Jim was laughed out of town for being a crazy loon. Yeah. You know, and this is where we're going. One world. And you put an image in my mind there of people. Now, some of some of these people were a bit were a bit um, heavy handed. But others, I, I saw some videos of, of other people, women and men, nice people, confronting scientists, uh, government scientists on the streets, confronting politicians and saying to them, you're, 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 you're corrupt, you're filthy, you're ruining our lives. They had that opportunity, even if it didn't do any good. But you've put that image in my mind. Now you've got people working for the World Health Organization. You'll never know their names. They're living in scattered all over the bloody world. Yes, exactly. They're basically untouchable. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and I think that's, that's, yeah. that's the aim because politicians don't want to get that kind of pushback. I, I think if, if they ever try to lock down, if, if any government, and I think they're aware of this, if they ever tried those tricks again, to lock people down and you couldn't see your dying relatives, et cetera, et cetera. We heard of some horrible, horrible stories about what happened there. If they ever tried that trick again, I think they are aware that they, they could be lynched. Now, the way you get out of that is by devolving it to a, an anonymous body somewhere and saying, you know, and you just shrug and say, well, all we're doing is we're, it's the following orders. 
defense, isn't it? Which, yeah. which usually they, they say you can't use, apparently. Well, they're, they're going to use it if they can use it. And because and that tells me that they're already signing up with the who, don't forget, as you've just mentioned, they're already signing away certain powers to this to this supranational body that is effectively funded by villain number one, Bill Gates. So funded by second, Bill Gates. Well said. The second, um, isn't he the second most uh, biggest contributor i think on, uh, after the, the u.s government so effectively it's a private individual a company well do you know what I, I i wouldn't dream of contradicting you but i've read somewhere that gates is a bigger donor to the who than the u.s government i've read I, it could well be um that might be wrong well, who knows he's got so many offshoots and yeah. he's got so many things in so many pies I, I i'm sure it's probably just one of many companies that he owns now david let I, me I, um let me let me did do you this see grant shaps did you see him Grant Shapps came forward the other week on a, on a Twitter video and said, "Hey, guess guess who uh, guess who's going to help the Conservatives with, with their next health issue or whatever?" And Gates. Bill Gates turned came around a corner like Gates. a pantomime villain. Yeah, I mean that that's I mean how could you be so hapless? How could any government in the world say, "Hey guys, let's introduce you"? Have you seen our new health advisor, guys? Computer and geek, I, Bill Gates. Yeah. <laughs> That was the Conservative Party. Oh Bono, God. Bono's friend, George Clooney's yes. drinking buddy. Yes. I want to ask you something else. Folks, yeah. please go and buy a copy of David's book. Is that true or did you hear it on the BBC? Read it quickly because he's currently writing. He's penning the sequel to that. David Sedgwick yeah. is our guest academic and author, gracing this programme for many years. Do you think that eventually MPs and governments as we know them today will morph into something we hear a tell of, something called citizens' assemblies. Is that coming down the line, do you think? Oh, I, I think there's going to be, there's obviously got to be a change, hasn't there? Um, yeah. I, I think we've reached a stage where democracy as we have, well, known it, or at least we, we think we knew it, because I don't, I would argue that it's never really been there. Um, but that state of democracy, I think, is definitely over. And there's definitely something in the air that there's going to be a change. And the only change I can see, it's not going to be benefit of, it's not going to benefit citizens. They can call it what they like. And they'll, they'll think of words that, or, or phrases that will perhaps fool some people. But I think the only path I can see is going towards further authoritarian, authoritarianism. Yeah. Um, you can call it a citizen's assembly. You can call it citizen whatever, but it won't be. Um, I think something is definitely going to alter that is going to be for the worse. It's not going to benefit. I mean, when you look at the, the WEF, that individual called Klaus Schwab is quite open when he says this is about um, consolidating and increasing our interests. That's what he actually says, our yeah, interests. Yeah, yeah. And by our interests, he doesn't mean the, the people's interest. He means the billionaire club that he's part of. Yeah. So the only way you do that, the only way you can increase that from this current situation where we're in now is to disenfranchise the poorer people even more than they are currently And that's what I meant, David. I, I hope my listeners didn't misunderstand me. That's what I meant. The yes, citizens' assemblies are the brainchild of people like Klaus Schwab. And what they'll yes. do, I think, is they will devolve and devolve, decentralise, that's what they'll do. They will introduce new programmes of decentralisation, giving people the idea that the power no longer resides in Westminster or in Holyrood or, mm. or wherever, or in Stormont, but now it resides in your hands. But of course, they'll have their men and women yeah. carefully placed in cities around the world, won't they? Like Sadiq Khan, for yes, example. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and all those all those political leaders will be chosen and groomed, and they will be rewarded. I mean, look look at someone like uh, Trudeau in Canada. 
And look, look at the havoc he's, he's wreaking on that country. And yet he stands up and very, very plausible. And some people, look how many people are fooled by him. I mean, I think he's, he's the absolute archetypal authoritarian then. He's an authoritarian, a dictator. And yet he puts a suit on and gets clean shaven <coughs> and smiles to the camera. And he fools, well, he must fool a majority of Canadians because he's been in power since, what, 2014, 2015. And that's, that's scary to me. That's terrifying that people cannot see through him. And the reason they can't see through him is because of divide and conquer. Because as long as you've got people fighting one another, half, that, half the population will naturally go and vote for someone like Trudeau if they think that Trudeau is fighting the dreaded right wing or something. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And that's how they do it. Instead of people at the bottom joining together to fight though, that little minority at the top, they keep people scrapping between left and right. And you see it on Twitter every single day. You know, I, I see people going, oh, the Tories are this, to anti, you know, the anti-Tory, I'm anti-Tory. People on the right are saying things like, oh, you can't let Labour get in. You can't, they'll ruin the economy. And I'm thinking, oh, for God's sake, will you stop that internal <laughs> ping-pong game and just get together and say your enemies are the people who are controlling you at the very, very Absolutely top. And right. they're squeezing all of us. <laughs> there are, there are, no, there, there are no exemptions. And here's the thing, I... From time to time, I run out of patience. You asked a very good question. Why do they keep putting Trudeau in? And then you gave the answer because of divide and conquer policies. You are right. However, many a man and many a woman like you and like me, even though it took me a bit longer, we eventually saw through it. You know, so we give a lot of these people a pass. I, I wonder how many of them don't see through it or or how many of them do see through it, but they haven't the guts to say yeah i see this you know for fear of the inevitable consequences being cancelled you know being labeled as a loon i reckon there's a lot of people kind of hiding under you know under their beds maybe who do know what's going on but don't want to say anything about it for fear of what i just said i think you're true Richard. that's probably the majority of people um and i i sometimes talk to certain people like that and, and i say to them i say you know you, people sometimes say, oh, great, you know, we're in the, we're, the silent majority was a, is a sort of a, a thing, isn't it? That, yeah. And some people say, you know, we are the silent majority. And I keep saying, well, that, that, I'm sorry, it's not good enough being the silent majority. Because all you need is a very, very, very vocal, tiny minority, and, and they will crush you. So being the silent majority in the middle there and hiding and, and sort of keeping your head down. And I've, I've had people say to me, oh, I prefer to keep my head down. But I'm glad that you... David, I'm glad that you're writing about the BBC. And I say, hey, hold on a minute. I can't do it on my own. No. Um, Richie, you've got your radio show. You, what I say to people is everybody has to do something, whatever, however little it is. We all have to make a contribution. Now, you, you're doing this great radio show and you're giving a voice to people. I'm writing books about the BBC. I'm trying to expose how the BBC protects power um, from scrutiny and actually tries to disenfranchise the entire population, at least the working class, the ordinary people. I'm doing that. You're doing what you do. Now, I want to see another 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 people doing their bit. And if everybody did their little bit, whatever it is, in ever, whatever small way it is, then you turn the tide. But you never turn the tide if there's only going to be you and me or, and Douglas Murray or Lawrence Fox. You're right. Katie, Katie yeah. Hopkins. If there's only be five of us or six or seven of us, we've got no chance. So it's up to everybody to do whatever they can, even if it's a little insignificant, even if it's saying to someone, hey, guys, have you heard Rich Allen? You want to listen to that show? Or why don't you get David's book? Yeah. Or, you, you know, we've all got to do something. It's no good being inactive. No, There's you're right. Day, yeah. Richie, there will come a day when, when, when you've got to do something. And that 
that action you might have to do in the future might be something very, very uh, radical. And it's better to do it now. You might have to break a law that might have serious consequences. Yeah, exactly. One day in the future, you might have to... Well, you're right. I mean, we're not too far away from... I mean, they're already talking about, you know, removing things from our, you know, what what would be our standard diet. They're talking about this openly. They're talking about things like 15-minute cities. And, of course, when you mention this, they say, oh, that's just a wacky conspiracy theory. They say we're not really talking about preventing people from driving in certain places. But but they are. They are. They're they're banning all diesel and petrol vehicles from 2030. I wonder, I mean, there must come a time, it might take four or five years, when the squeeze will be so much so that life becomes so awful that maybe enough people will say you know what now enough now (laughs) yeah i've had this conversation with a few people and i'm I'm a bit worried about that because i i like you i'd like to be an optimist and think when 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 you can't go to a bank and draw money out right without some kind of authorization i mean already myself and my wife have noticed we're getting questions in the bank that we need to have me too yeah have you noticed Um, yeah and there's cameras all over the goddamn place now i know i know obviously banks are security issues but I've noticed this happening. I'm being asked questions about my banking. What are you going to do with your money? I'm thinking, what, what do you mean? What am I going to yeah. do with my money? I'm going to do. I'm going to draw what I want, when I want, and do what I want with it. Now, you'd hope you'd hope that certain people would think at some point, if if a government is going to tell you you can't draw out a, a certain amount of money, or you've spent too much, or you spent it on the wrong items, you would hope. Or if they say things like, "Look, I'm sorry, you've driven too many miles this week. Uh, you'll have to stay within Zone A this week. You yeah. can't go to Zone B or Zone C." Um, you'd hope that there'd be a point where people say, I'm sorry, I'm not putting up with this. I'll go where but, I want to go, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and F you. But I don't think so. You know what I think will happen? I think you're going to get a situation where people will be sitting around there with their smartphones in their designated cafe in Zone A, and they'll be saying things, how many points have you got this week? Oh, Jesus, oh, yeah. Will, will you be yeah. able to go, hey, guess what? If I get two more points, I'll be able to go to Zone C next week. Oh, really? How, how many points have you got? I actually think that's what they'll do, Richie, because... It's a boiling the frog situation. You're right. And if they believe that the earth is in imminent danger because of yes. rising temperatures, and if they do believe that, they yeah. will sit there and play yeah. games of one-upmanship just as you described yeah, with each other. And they'll be, and they'll be <laughs> sitting there glowing in their own sort of, oh, aren't we doing the right thing? Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and it'll be like a, a competition. See, who's been the best, the best yeah. schoolgirl or schoolboy this week? And how many gold stars has teacher given you this week? You remember when you were a kid? And you, the teacher used to give you a gold star. A gold your star and, on your copybook, yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and and people will be saying, oh, look how many stars have you got this week? I Actually, if I get 10 stars, I might be able to go for a week to Tenerife even. Wow. So I've just got to be good. And, you know, that, that's, and that, that situation can happen by increment. And we're already incrementally going there because already I see on Twitter some people saying, hey, 15-minute cities, that'd be great. What a great idea, green. And, you know, the yeah. way they're selling it, green. Open air, fresh air. What the hell's all that about? Everything is on your doorstep. Yeah, it's wonderful, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah. I mean, anyway, so I think that I would like to think that, like you, that there'd come a point where people would say, I'm sorry, I'm not having this. We're not having this anymore. We're not going to be dictated to by you, you you faceless bureaucrats working on behalf of massively um, politicized financial institutions, such as the Black Rocks and and all those investment bankers. We're We're not having it. We assert our, our right to be free. That's what you would expect. And yet, knowing what I know about this pandemic and the way that people shut down their businesses and the way they reacted and just accepted whatever the government told them to do and they jumped yeah. into line, and some outrageous demands were made of people. I don't know, Richie. I'm, I'm really worried. 
It's funny you mentioned BlackRock there. We've got about five minutes left. David Sedgwick is our guest. I remember covering a story quite a few years ago, and nobody else covered this except me. I couldn't believe this. So George Osborne was the Chancellor of the Exchequer one time. He's now editing the Evening Standard. Deplorable character. Anyway, Osborne was the Chancellor, and he knew that the construction firm Carillion was um, going to collapse, that it was in serious trouble. And while he knew this, he advised BlackRock to make very serious financial bets against Carillion, while at the same time he continued to make sure that Carillion got contracts. Now, that, and that's a fact, no, no libel on this programme, Osborne should have gone to prison for 20 years for that. Yeah. But I now mean, he's editing the Evening Standard. Exactly. Uh, it, and, you know, it's the, it's the concept that I've been talking about recently, which I'm going to yeah. ex, um, expand on in my book, my book, and I call that the Golden Circle. Once you're a member of that inner, inner elite, and I use the word elite advisedly, of course, that you can actually get away with criminal behavior. And you only have to look at the Bidens and the Clintons and, and people like that in America. And institutions like the BBC will protect you because they understand that we, we are this elite little group who can get away with committing, it's usually financial crime, actually, because it's all about in, enhancing their own material and financial positions. But they're quite happy to do that. But you put you drop a piece of litter on the street or you send out a tweet and they will send out their enforcers i.e the police to crack down on you instantly and that's the society we live in and that's a very unhealthy society to live in i think i think it's the most corrupt society i think in the in the history of human evolution because we should be progressing towards an equitable society that's fairer in fact it seems to me the opposite is true i mean this is this kind of society i think society is not evolving it's going backwards i don't i don't think society has ever been as corrupt um, as it is at this current moment in time. Yeah, in my lifetime, I I don't know. I mean, I became I got into journalism in 1998. I, I yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that. I mean, in a few minutes' time, I'm going to be speaking to a lady who has been arrested several times for praying near an abortion clinic. Now, some of our listeners will disagree with um with the lady on whether abortion should be right or or not right, and that's fine. That's for another day. We've had these debates. But for the police to be taking you away, for standing out in the open air, minding your own business, not speaking to anybody, and yeah. saying a prayer because you're moved by yeah. the plight of these unborn children, mm. and to be taken away, that is positively dystopian, isn't it? Yeah, and it shows you how, how far we've fallen and, and that the, the police force was something you would have considered to be a bedrock yeah. that you, you, you could turn to. And I think more and more people are now thinking... I can't trust the police. I mean, think about that. I cannot trust the police because the police are now politicized. They are, they've got graduates in there that have been through the system. And they're just, in, in my, as I always quote Orwell, as Orwell said, they are just members of this golden circle. He, I call it the golden circle. He calls it the party, the inner party. That's the real power brokers. And then the outer party, the journalists, the teachers, the educators, the, the union officials, all those people who are propping up that corrupt system. And the police, unfortunately, not not the beat bobbies, but when you go up to those management positions in the police, I would say that they are part of the golden circle. They've got their eye on their material well-being, and the material well-being of people in that golden circle is inextricably linked to promoting the dogma of the dominant ideology, which is basically BlackRock and Gates and Co. And the police are in that circle, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. At least, at least the management, the senior management of the police, I would say, are in that circle. The bobbies on the beat are not. But doesn't matter what the bobby on the beat says. No, they follow orders. Can I get exactly. a very quick comment from you? It's got to be quick, 30, 40 yeah. seconds. Um, God, I should have brought this up earlier on. 
I've been whinging about something for about three years now. And it is the, 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 the new trend of radio stations and television channels to give news programmes to MPs, to hand television programmes to MPs. They've all done it. So you've got Labour Party, you've got Tories um, with their own programmes. Orwell would not have believed this. If you'd gone back in time and said to Orwell, quick comment on that, because I keep banging on about it. And if I had your skill, in ter- if I could write, which I cannot, but if I had your ability, I would write a book on this. Um, oh. Giving MPs their own TV shows. Go ahead, quickly. Uh, well, you don't mind. You know, I mean, journalism is supposed to be holding, journalism is all about holding power to account, or at least it used to be. Yeah. So when I saw Jacob Rees Mogg sitting on a, or hosting a program, I think, on an internet clip of GB News, I, My just, God. Oh, God, I cannot believe what I'm seeing. That there should be a clear, clear demarcation between that end of story. You, you don't blur the edges. No. And that, that shows how far this society is now turned upside down on its head, as far as I can see. And like you know I what, said. David? They gave Rhys Mogg a programme. His very first guest was the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, <laughs> Lee Anderson. And a week later, they handed Lee Anderson a programme. <laughs> well... What yeah. are we going to get? Are we going to get now journalists sitting in the Houses of Parliament and, oh, and MPs sitting on TV? It's crazy. Just, is it a job swap? I can see a TV programme coming on, job swap. Job I mean, swap. It's, it's ludicrous, isn't it? You have been listening to uh, the one and only David Sedgwick. Find David online. Find his books on Amazon. The, new, the, the latest book is Is That True? Or Did You Hear It on the BBC? It is vital reading. He's writing the sequel as we speak. And... Uh, um, depending on how long, I mean, you might be back on before the sequel is, uh, is is published, David. But it's always a pleasure, pal. Love listening to you, and thanks for coming back on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richie. Take care. You too, David. David Sedgwick, folks, live on Wednesday's Richie Allen Show. The time is coming up for three minutes past the hour. I'll be reading your comments in a moment, and then very interesting guests coming up shortly thereafter. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Now, Baird says he's getting fed up of the COVID gate WhatsApp leak business. Even people, I've lost that comment. Oh, jeepers. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I've got it now. Yeah, he says, getting fed up of this narrative, WhatsApp leak business, even people who don't believe any of the COVID narrative in the first place seem to be buying the story that Hancock handed over all of those private messages. The messages that incriminate some of them or all of them to a journalist and that a major newspaper would publish and report on it. It seems to me it's obvious it's all a controlled operation, says Baird. The whole lot of it from start to finish. And you know what, Baird, I'm open to that. It's very strange to me, irrespective of how stupid one might think Matt Hancock, the former health secretary, is. Could he be that stupid to hand over all of these messages? I do not know. It's a good point. Um, And some of you are making comments about abortion and your feelings about it. And I will read those out a bit later on. I'll be speaking in a moment to uh, Isabel Vaughan Spruce. She's the lady who's been in... Uh, the news, everybody's been talking about her. Isabel is um, a member of an organisation, which, uh, if you let me bring it up there, so I don't give you... It's called March for Life. She's the director of March for Life. She was arrested on Monday, not for the first time, for something they call breaching a public space protection order, uh, PSPO. It's a buffer zone put in place to protect women who do attend abortion clinics, protect them allegedly from harassment. But Isabel told the officers in a video which is widely circulated online that she was there to pray and and refused to move 
away from where she was standing. She certainly wasn't harassing anybody. And, you know, again, I, I'm supposed to be objective, but you've got to call it as you see it. She was standing there praying. Um, pretty, you, you know, comes across a very articulate lady, um, you know, an educated lady. But everybody's talking about this and um, whether or not she has been effectively picked up by the police for a thought crime. This happened in December as well. We'll talk to her in a few minutes about that. I'm looking forward to it. Lots of messages on the BBC, on Bill Gates, on the World Health Organization. Thank you for them. Heather says, those who embrace 15-minute cities are welcome to them. Pile into the ghettos, you tards, she says, and leave the rest of us to live our lives normally on the outside. Would it were that simple, Heather? I agree with you 100%. number of you talking about cashless society. David talked about being questioned when he goes to the bank. I've had some of this. I've had a repeated issue with my bank whereby I go to make a purchase online. Um, innocuous stuff now. You know, I might buy something small for the studio. I might buy an album. I like vinyl, right? So I buy vinyl. And it happens several times a week that the purchase is blocked. And I've got to ring the bank then and argue with the bank and get them to take the block off the account and all this messing around. And on a couple of occasions, they've begun to ask me questions about my spending, which I've put a stop to straight away, you know. Listen, enough of that. Just unblock the account. It doesn't matter. You know, I buy football tickets online sometimes. Sometimes I buy not so much these days because it's been so long since we had a good night out at a concert, but sometimes a gig, sometimes a book, sometimes I buy something on Amazon, God forgive me. And it keeps happening. They keep wanting to know what you're buying and why you're buying it. As Sean Brown says that David Sedgwick's books are really good reads. I can't wait for the next one. He says I... Uh, echo that. Thomas says on the COVID thing, no mistakes were made. It's intentional. It has been planned for many years now, says Thomas. I don't think you'll get too many arguments, uh, Thomas, from our listeners today. Uh, loads, if I go down, massive amount of comments. Backbeat says, it is widely held. The view is widely held that Gary Lineker's moral stance is built on sand. His own alleged dalliances are said to have caused the end of both his and another famous sportsman's marriages. Fair enough, Backbeat, but let's play the ball and not the man. That's what I would say. I don't think Gary Lineker's failings, if he does have any failings in his private life, are fair game when it comes to the issue of whether he should be entitled to his opinion or not. I would argue that he is entitled to his opinion and whether he's not a nice guy privately, well, that might be true. I don't know. I've never met Gary Lineker. But um, I don't think it's relevant. You obviously do, and I suppose we'll have to agree to disagree. William Gale came on to say, I've worked in several countries, Richie, in Asia and Africa. Try getting into any of those countries to work without paperwork, without the correct paperwork. You will be arrested, says William. Meanwhile, in the UK, no paperwork, no problem. Yeah, and in Ireland, it would appear to William. It is Wednesday. It is the 8th of March, 2022. I'm Richie Allen. Joining me momentarily, looking forward to meeting her, Isabel Vaughan Spruce. Uh, so you don't want to miss that. Stay with me. Here's PM Dawn. <laughs> 
Okay, that is uh, PM Dawn and Set Adrift on Memory Bliss. Just before we welcome Isabel to the programme, allow me to read this from The Times briefly. Now, Conservative MPs have criticised the Orwellian arrest of an anti-abortion campaigner who claimed to be silently praying outside a clinic. Isabel Vaughan Spruce, Director of March for Life, was arrested on Monday for breaching a public space protection order, a buffer zone put in place to protect women attending the clinic from harassment. The 45-year-old told officers she was just here to pray as she refused to move from the entrance to the Birmingham Clinic. West Midlands Police said the woman was advised to leave the area and refused before being issued with a fixed penalty notice. When she refused to leave again, she was arrested. I'm uh, happy to welcome to the programme the Director of March for Life, Isabel Vaughan Spruce. Isabel, you're very welcome to the programme. How are you? I'm very well, thank you for having me on. Now, it's really nice to have you on. Would you like to, um, I suppose, give us a bit of background? This began, I think, very late last year. Do you want to tell us why this is happening? Talk to us about the, the clinic in Birmingham. Your, not so much your relationship with that, but why you found yourself going there back in December of last year. Sure. Yeah. So I've been doing the work I've been doing for about 20 years. So that's going outside abortion centres and um, just offering some help and alternatives to women. Um, And I've had many, many, many women um, very grateful and accepting that help. Women who had had the first appointment, initial appointment at the abortion centres and hadn't been presented with realistic alternatives there, sometimes even having taken the first set of the abortion tablets. But when they were presented with a realistic alternative, and that might be financial help, accommodation, private medical care, sometimes just friendship, um, they felt enabled to continue a pregnancy, which was what they really wanted. Um, And I've had the privilege of seeing many of these children and staying in contact with many of these mums and couples. So I've been doing that pretty much every week, as I say, for about 20 years. Tell us about, um, sorry to interrupt you now, this is really, and we've got time, if you have time, we have time. I'm fascinated by this, because I'm interested in the alternatives. Like you said there that you would um, chat with with ladies and say, you know ladies, there are other options, and I'm I'm very interested in this. And there is this Mm -hmm. idea, and a lot of your supporters have been saying, you know, Isabel is right here. There, when ladies contact abortion clinics, or even if they speak to their GPs, that they're not getting enough um, in terms of help with, well, you know, you don't have to go through with it. There are other alternatives. How, how much of that is actually true? I mean, are abortion clinics just saying, okay, we'll make the appointment? Or, or, or is someone there saying, well, maybe abortion is not for you? That's what I'm struggling with, Isabel, this idea of alternatives. Yeah. And, and I wish more people would actually be willing to talk to, you know, some some of the women who we've supported and hear some of their stories. I mean, I was talking to someone just recently and she was telling me she had a list of questions. She went into the abortion centre and started on question number one. And the woman who was giving her the appointment said, look, it's as simple as this. Do you want the abortion or not? And in a panic, she said yes and took the abortion pills. But that wasn't really what she wanted. She wanted some questions answered. Um, So I think people often misguidedly think, you know, that they can go and have maybe some counselling, just have a discussion. But the abortion providers are there giving out abortions. They don't give out the thousands of pounds that we might be able to help if people are maybe struggling and in debt. You know, a while ago we found somebody, uh, they just needed a new car. Someone else needed help finding a job. Um, someone else wanted some some medical help. And as I say, often it's just maybe that feeling of solidarity. 
and 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 many of the women that we support um, are really think, feeling pressured, often by men in their lives. Sometimes it's it's you know quite serious pressure. Sometimes it's more subtle, like a um, a man saying, "Well, you know, you've got to choose. If you if you keep the pregnancy, then I'm going." And that in itself is often a choice that a woman just doesn't feel that she can cope with and, and, and ends up aborting a child, which she actually wanted. And, and what we do find is often that the problems themselves aren't going away with the abortion because it's not the pregnancy that is considered really the problem. It's more often situations around that. So if somebody's in a difficult relationship, they have the abortion and they still go home to that, you know, maybe abusive relationship. If they're struggling financially, they still go back home from the abortion and they're still struggling financially. Whereas we're actually able to, to look at these situations that are in their life and ask them how we can help with those. And many of the women that we're dealing with end up so much better off before afterwards than they were beforehand. Um, I mean, I know a woman that was, who's actually part of our, our campaign who, who helps with us, one of our volunteers. And she has had multiple abortions. You know, the amount of children that she's lost to abortion is in double figures. And basically she was being abused she was being told to get the abortion, which she dutifully did, and came back home and was raped again. And this just went on and on and on because nobody was dealing with the real situation, which was the abusive men in her life. So um, you're saying so that th there wasn't enough support there to try and determine the root cause as to why the lady has chosen abortion. Now, I, this is really important and I'm glad we're, we're, we're discussing this. So you've been doing this for 20 years, so approaching women and saying, look, there are other options. Um, what about those who say, look, there's approaching women to say, ladies, there are other options. And then, and I'm not saying this about you now, Isabel, I'm completely open-minded yeah. to this, but then there are people who are deeply motivated by their faith and maybe lean very hard on women who say, well, listen, thanks very much for you know, telling me that you care and that there are options, but I want to go ahead with it for my own reasons. But they get leaned on even more by the person who, you know, might be very deeply motivated by their faith. And some people have, have kind of criticised that and said, well, it's not really just giving us the options. It's not taking no for an answer. What do you say to that? So before anyone joins my campaign, and every campaign I know has a very similar um, code of conduct, basically we have what we call a statement of peace that everyone agrees to abide by. And every volunteer has to sign this before they engage in our work. I think sometimes people just think it's some sort of like, you know, ramshackle group that just turns up. There's actually a lot of organisation that goes on into the work that I do. Um, so everyone who comes would have to sign the statement of peace, which would cover the conduct that they use, the words that they say. For instance, they wouldn't be allowed to use words like murder or murderer. Yeah. You know, um, they would be trained in what they were, you know, what they do say. The initial approach is to say either, um, would you like a leaflet or can we help you? That is the opening line. And if somebody says no or just walks on by, then that's where the conversation ends. And, and people are, are trained to do that. And that is what they do. Um, the fact that we have so many women who do approach us and, and do respond to us, they're the ones who are, who are quite happy to give their testimony and say how they felt on the day, that they didn't feel intimidated um, by the people talking to them. They didn't feel pressured. Yeah. I mean, often I'm, I'm talking to women and they do continue in and have an abortion. And, and how do you um, feel yes, when that happens, Isabel? When, I, I think that's really sad because yeah. I often see the the um, other side of that. You know, I work very closely with an organisation called Rachel's Vineyard, 
And Rachel's Vineyard um, helps anyone who's been hurt by an abortion. Um, and sometimes it sometimes it can be somebody who's had an abortion and immediately regrets it. Um, you know, literally, I, I, the amount of times I've heard stories of women saying, I put the pen in my mouth, swallowed it, and then thought, what have I done? Yeah. You know, that is just such a common story. But sometimes it can be decades later. Um, and sometimes it's just something that they've almost buried down inside themselves, you know, and they're constantly thinking, how old would my child be? You know, maybe whenever they meet a child that was born in the year that they had their abortion, it, it can be quite a trigger and it can be years before they actually deal with it. And and seeing, you know, um, women and men who can suffer after an abortion, um, it's really sad that the proper alternatives aren't presented to them so that they really feel that they have got an option. And do you think, Isabel, um, I mean, let me remind our listeners who who um, who um, we're, we're listening to, we're, we're listening to Isabel Vaughan Spruce, Isabel is all over the news. I might ask you in a moment how that feels. That can't be uh, great. I wouldn't imagine it is having your, your, your picture splashed everywhere in some of these articles, but um, maybe you're getting used to it now. Isabel is the director of March for Life and Isabel and her colleagues, they, um, they, they're, they're a campaign group and they aim to, to speak to women who are planning on having an abortion, going to a clinic and saying to them, listen, you might not have all the information. There are alternatives. Here's their card. Here's a leaflet. And Isabel says that they're, they don't use emotional language like murder. They don't harass women. If it's no, thank you, they withdraw and the lady will then carry on into the clinic. And you said something there that kind of touched me. And that is, you know, hearing from people who who regret it and five, ten years down the road think maybe I shouldn't have done that. And I wish I, you know, if I knew what I know now. And I can understand why someone like yourself, Isabel, would think, well, maybe these are not bad things for women considering an abortion to hear. Wouldn't it be good if they could hear some of these testimonies, at least to get both sides of it before making the decision? They might still go ahead and decide that they're not in the place to have a child and they might go and have the abortion. But at least if they had all of, um, as you said, the options or the alternatives placed in front of them, that would give them a, a, you know, kind of a chance of making a more rounded decision. Let me ask you, as far, I hate to use terms like success rate. It sounds so bloody tabloid. But in terms of your own group, March for Life, how, how often, you know, how common would it be for uh, a young woman or, or an older woman to say, right, I'll come with you, I'll have a cup of tea, and then they reverse the decision? So just to say, there's a few, there's a few points I'd need to bring up with this. Firstly, Two. at the moment, we're outside the... PSPO that we've got in Birmingham, the main volunteers are there. It's very, very difficult to even communicate with anybody because we're barely in sight of the abortion centre. So that massively damages our our work and really impacts it. When we're outside the abortion centre, it is very hard, like you say, to kind of quantify it. And, and, And we would say if we only ever reached one person, how important is that one person? But I mean, just over a space of a few years, I know well over 100 women who accepted our help. But that they were the ones that we, you know, we managed to continue communication with and kept in touch. And, and we know the end results. So often we'll have a conversation or give out a leaflet and a woman will say, you know, I, you know, maybe I didn't know about this help. Thank you so much. You know what? I'm going to go away and have another think or I'm going to go and have a chat with my boyfriend now. And we don't know the end result of that. We have had some lovely occasions. I mean, I can think of one occasion when there was a uh, a woman came walking down the road, um, a more mature aged woman with a pram, 
And she stopped and just said, I, you know, I keep meaning to come past this way and say, thank you. This is my grandchild. You know, and if you hadn't been here that day when my daughter was coming here, she would have aborted. And, and we're, we're all so pleased that it never turned out that way. And there's been so many occasions of that people coming back, um, bringing their children back to show off. I've had a doctor come up to me and just show me a photograph and said, I believe you spoke to this baby's mum a while ago. You know, she wanted you to see the photograph of her baby. Um but often that's we don't lovely, know yeah. the end result so often. So, you know, it isn't a question of numbers. No, no, I, I, that's why... sure that everyone has yeah. that alternative. And that's why I, it was a kind of a tabloid question. It, it wasn't a gotcha question, you know. I didn't want to be f- phrasing it like that. As for these PSPOs, these protection orders, were, were those introduced because, not, not obviously not you, but because other campaigners were being heavy-handed with, with women attending clinics? Absolutely not. And it's and it's really really sad because every time I read an article about what happens at at vigils and just to say some people call them protests we're not there protesting we want to be approachable because we want to talk to women so of course we're not standing there screaming with megaphones and abusive placards and things but every time I read about it in the newspapers that's how it's portrayed without a shred of evidence to support that. Even yesterday, it was being discussed in Parliament. I heard MPs standing up saying how we, we live stream videos of women going into abortion centres. I can guarantee there's not a pro-lifer in the country that would dream of doing that. I mean, I connect with all the groups that go outside abortion centres. I know the people who run them. Um, I know the codes of conduct they have for people who go there. They wouldn't dream of such behaviour. And yet nobody has to produce any evidence to make these outrageous claims. I mean, the local MP in Birmingham, he made a claim in Parliament about how our men in our campaign were perverts. And, and, you know, terms like that, which he can say with immunity in Parliament without any evidence whatsoever. Yeah, you make a very good point there. There, there We have been presented with no evidence that pro-life campaigners have been hurling abuse at people going into clinics and there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever and I can say this because I've got objectivity here and I did look to find some of this not to Shanghai you Isabel but you've got to do your job I, I, I had to go and look for some of this stuff no in the United States in some places over the years yes there has been a bit of that but here what I've seen and there, there aren't many videos are people as you said kind of very quietly offering, you know, a little bit of advice to somebody and then retreating if it's not welcome. So they brought in these PSPOs. Now, where where is this coming from? Is this because governments have been lobbied by the people who run the clinics? Why have these um, protection orders come in? Um, And just to say, if there was anything like that happening, we would be the first to want to to ban it you know that's why we have strict codes of conduct to make sure anybody who who maybe was unstable didn't join our campaigns um so just to say that and and also that there already are laws to deal with intimidation and harassment so if anything like that people were concerned about there's laws that could deal with it but yes i think i think the um, abortion industry if i can call it that has got a lot of money um those that support it um, are, are able to, you know, really help fund any campaigns that they have. Um, and sometimes it is the case that, that these groups of people can have a very loud voice. Um, as I said, it's, it's supported by a lot of journalists in the secular media, and that does an awful lot of damage. I mean, I dare say that there are women that turn up at abortion centres quite nervous because they've probably read stories in the newspapers of the sort of things that, that is said that we're going to do. I mean, if I'd read stories about us, 
I would probably be terrified of what was going to happen, that people were going to throw yeah. holy water over me, which is how we're described, and, and shout murderer at me and run down the street after me, you know. Um, so those people put fear into people. And also in the end, as I say, some of that sticks, you know. Um, and I think people maybe don't, don't realise the extent that some people will go to to support their own ideology. And that includes not just giving out misinformation, but out and out lies. As I say, I've, said, I've seen it with myself, whether it's with local newspapers describing my campaign, whether it's with councillors printing things um, online um, that just bear no resemblance whatsoever to what happens at my vigil. And nobody wants to hear the truth. I mean, as you were saying, what we do is done in public. It's not like we're doing it in some kind of secret hidden chamber. It's there out in the public. If anyone really wanted to see what we were doing, they can come and watch. You know, they can see, they can stand, they could sit in a car nearby and see what was happening. But there has never been any evidence whatsoever. None whatsoever. No, I went looking for it. happening. Isabel Vance Bruce is our guest, Director of March for Life. And yet some MPs, to their credit, criticised the arrest um, and said it's Orwellian. And it is, regardless of my own personal feelings on abortion and on um, on, on the subject itself on, on, on and even on, you know, your own group, whatever my opinions might be on Christianity, the fact is, it is, and I'm pretty open to Christianity as it happens, the fact is, Isabel, it is Orwellian in the extreme. I saw the video of them speaking to you. I mean, it is horrendous. I mean, while that's happening, are you aware of just how utterly scary and terrifying this is that a woman is being arrested because she's exercising her human right to stand where she chooses to stand silently, minding her own business? I mean, while it's happening, are you aware that this is very Kim Jong-un-esque kind of a thing, really? Yeah, and just to say, I've lost count of the amount of times people have have brought in Orwell to this, and I think they're, yeah. they're quite right to do this. And I've been really blessed by the amount of support I've been given. Like you're saying, from people who say to me, I don't share your religious beliefs, or I don't agree with you on the abortion issue, but I too have got really serious concerns about this. And I, and I think they're right to have serious concerns. I mean, the police officer said to me on Monday, when he, he came along with five other officers, so the six officers they send to arrest me with a police van, and the police officer says to me, you're engaging in prayer, which is the offence. And when I said, I, I don't believe that prayer is an offence, he said even more emphatically, it is an offence. You know, is that seriously where we've got to, that somebody's silent thoughts, because they're directed towards God, are, are considered to be an offence? You know, if somebody doesn't believe in that God, fine, they might think my thoughts are nonsense. But to label them as a crime, that's something totally different. And that should be really concerning because it might be my thoughts today that fall foul of popular opinion or, or, or what you know, MPs might think. But it's going to be somebody else's thoughts tomorrow or six months time. We just can't have a society where certain thoughts are prohibited. Um, that, that is really, really concerning. Is it part of a pattern? I am agnostic, right? You, you you would have no reason to know that, but I am. But I was raised as, as a, a Catholic. And I have a lot of respect for, you know, a lot of people I've met over the years who've worked in the church, who've worked around the church, and I admire their faith. I'm open-minded, as I said. But I'm objective, so I think it carries a little bit of weight what I'm about to say, because I don't have any dog in the fight to use that terrible phrase. It seems to me it's part of a pattern. And it's part of a pattern, I think. You might think this is glib, you might think this is nonsense. Um of undermining worship and prayer 
and I see it I see it everywhere, particularly in the media, as um kind of um I won't say demonizing, but yeah, undermining is probably the word. Um Christianity and religious faith. Am I getting this totally wrong or do you see that pattern too? Well, I think the fact that the PSPOs themselves, these public space protection orders, so for instance, the one in Birmingham, it actually labels prayer, you know, as one of the prohibited, one of the activities which is prohibited as a form of protest. I mean, that in itself should show a certain, um, should show us that there's a certain amount of discrimination going on, because it's saying if certain thoughts, if they're directed towards God, are banned. You know, it's not saying that certain thoughts are banned, but if they're directed towards God, because that's what a prayer is, it's when our thoughts are directed towards God. Um, like you say, people are free to believe that or not believe in, in God, but to say that certain types of thoughts, as in prayer, are, are, are now going to be criminalised. And, and just to maybe share with this, you know, we've got this PSPO in Birmingham. So we've got this zone in which certain actions are banned. And, and that's maybe just worth stressing that a PSPO doesn't ban people because some people have said, well, you weren't allowed in that area. A PSPO isn't like a restraining order. It doesn't stop people going in an area. It bans actions. So it bans certain actions from happening in that area. So I've got my volunteers to stand outside the PSPO, which is right down the other end of the road, barely even in sight of the abortion centre. And they're actually standing outside a Catholic church because that's just where it happens to be on the pavement that they're standing. So there's two, maybe three people at a time quietly praying outside a church. And yet we're still being threatened. We're still being abused. We're still being spat at. We're having our property stolen by locals in the area who have a different ideology to us. Um, and actually, this kind of thing is, is fostering that kind of intolerance. This isn't the people using the abortion centre. It's actually the staff using the abortion centre who, who work there. It's certain locals in the area who, who disagree with our beliefs. And whilst I'm perfectly entitled to disagree, to support that, that kind of intolerance, which is what these zones are doing, it's fostering this, this real intolerance and division in an area. Um, it, it's really not helpful towards um you know a peaceful community there's people living in that community who are telling me i'm frightened to lift my head above the parapet in case my neighbors find out what i think these are people who aren't part of our our work but just support us and, and are happy with what we do but they're frightened to tell their neighbors because of the backlash um it, it's it's a form of bullying really um people have now started saying the church needs to move because we're out standing outside the church this is an old church that's been there far longer than any of them have been there and far longer than the abortion center. But yeah, I think we're really fostering a sense of intolerance towards religious beliefs. And, and again, that should be something that we're worried about, whether we're religious or not. And, and I wanted to ask you about that. We just, just have a, just a little few minutes left. Isabel Vaughan Spruce is our guest. Isabel is a director, the director of March for Life and they campaign um, and she eloquently described earlier on, Isabel, what it is they do. They try to present alternatives to women of all ages who are pregnant and who feel they need to have a termination. And they do that in a very, as Isabel has claimed, and there might be people listening to the programme who might disagree, but you'll have to show me some proof here. I haven't seen any proof. Isabel says it's a very humane approach to people, and when the approach is rejected, um, the group withdraws. But they say to women, look, there are other 
you know, possibilities. You don't need to have determination if you don't really want to. And we've talked earlier about how, you know, the, the governments, local governments, maybe GPs and maybe the clinics themselves are not doing enough to say to women, look, there are other opportunities. I wanted to ask you, it's a negative thing, this, not not, not, not against you. Um, most people I know, Isabel, I live in Salford, in, in, um, in um, near Media City. Most people I know are broke. And they are broker than broke, right? They are in serious financial trouble. And reading all of these stories today and reading about you and your group, and it occurred to me that a lot of young women are going to be looking for these services in the near future. Is that a concern that you have in this so-called cost of living crisis, that this is going to become something that's needed more? You know, more intervention might be needed to to say to young women, um, you don't have to do this. I, I think I think you're right in pointing out that this is becoming a, a big factor with the cost of living going up. Sometimes people are struggling struggling with the children that they've got, families that they've got, and the thought of another child on the way can can be a, a, a real worry to them and, and a genuine concern. Um, and it's really sad to think that there is that help there from organisations um, like ones I'm involved in. And just to say it's more, um, I have two hats and it's more 40 days for life that I'm involved with that helps outside the abortion centre. Um, March for Life does other work. But organisations like 40 Days for Life, um, like the Good Council Network, there's various organisations around the country that are there to help women in those kind of situations, to help them find that the support that they need, whatever way that might be. Um, but they're not even allowed to present these alternatives to women. Um, if, if women choose not to accept them, that is their choice. But to not even know they exist, this, this is really, really sad. Our leaflets don't mention religion. They're not like religious tracts that we're giving out to women. Um, they've been checked by a doctor, a local GB checks them to make sure we're not giving out any medical in, mes- misinformation. Um, but yeah, just to make sure that women really do have a choice. And as I say, People keep peddling this term pro-choice and it kind of sticks in my throat um, because so many women I've spoken to have said that's something that they didn't have. Um, and when we really are trying to offer that choice, we're the ones that are being censored. Who could argue with that? Who could argue with the idea that somebody making such a you know, a life-changing decision should have all of the facts and maybe should hear from some people who went through it and regretted it and also hear that there is support there if you want it. Before you give us them website addresses that people should check out, Isabel, so, you know, they've arrested you several times. They keep giving you these fixed penalty notices. It is Orwellian. Regardless of what I think about, you know, abortion, it doesn't matter. It is Orwellian. Will you continue to do it? Will you continue to turn up? So at the moment, I've been released on bail. And one of my bail conditions is not that I just can't go back into the PSPO at all, but I can't even join the people outside the PSPO. Um, I've been banned from doing that at the moment. Um, so it, you know, it does kind of beg the question, who's intimidating who here? Um, so obviously I will continue to do what I can and to support the people who are able to, you know, get a bit nearer and talk to women and offer help. Um, and obviously I'm still, you know, engaging in prayer. I don't believe that my prayer can ever be an offense, no matter what law says that. Um, I, I believe that my silent prayers are one of my most you know, fundamental rights, my, my, my own thoughts. Um, but yeah, I think, I think those that can get involved in this work, you know, really need to do this because it's, 
it's absolutely a lifeline for some women in, in real difficult situations. And, and like you say, even more so at the moment with such difficulties that are going on financially for people. And finally, where should people go online to find out more about what it is you do? I think maybe one of the, the most useful things is just to go to um, March for Life. That's all words, March, F-O-R, life, dot co dot UK. And there's a list there of all the different organisations um, so that would be organisations that can help in crisis pregnancy situations, but also organisations like Rachel's Vineyard, which can help anyone who's hurting after an abortion. And that might be somebody who's hurting physically, who, who's maybe finding that they can't have children because of an infection they had or something like that. Somebody who's, obviously, if you need to see a doctor, that's separate. But if somebody who's, who's maybe realising the physical repercussions. If someone's hurting emotionally, it's for men as well as women. It's for people who are hurt indirectly, um, maybe people whose grandchildren were aborted and, and they are hurting because of that. Anyone who's been affected. Um, so organisations like that are also on, on our website, marchforlife.co.uk. So if you go there, you should be able to get you know any of the help you need or just drop us an email and we can help direct you um, to where you might find the, the, the help that's suitable for you. Real pleasure to speak with you, Isabel. Thanks for taking the time out to uh, to talk to us about your group and what it is you do. And um, and uh, Godspeed to you. I say that sincerely. Thank you very much. It's been a blessing to be on. Thanks very much, Isabel. And bye for now. That's Isabel Vaughan Spence, who is uh, the director of March for Life, who's been arrested several times for breaching a public space protection order. She wasn't exaggerating when she... Um, when she described the approach by the police, it's all on video. They they said to her that it's the prayer. That prayer is not legal. You can't pray there. Yeah. Uh, Jean-Anne Crowley, interested in these matters, you, you know who Jean-Anne is, has said this is utterly mad. It is utterly mad to me. It's utterly mad. <laughs> I'm not laughing because I find it's funny. I'm, I'm just shaking my head, really. You know? And look, um... We always present both sides of everything here where we can. And while Isabel painted a picture uh, as to how she and her colleagues behave, if you've been at an abortion centre, and it might not have been March for Life, it might be another campaign group, but if you've seen another side of that, and I'm sure I will get an email or two, I'm happy to give you right of reply. If you have been around a clinic and people have been shouting murderers and have been shouting things, and, you know, you want to make that point, I'll obviously facilitate that on the programme. But as she said there, no evidence was proffered by any of the MPs who claimed that live streams happened, that groups were, pro-life groups were going to clinics, not Isabel's group per se, but other groups were going to clinics and were live streaming and they were screaming at women using loud hailers or megaphones and calling them murderers. But nobody has offered any evidence to support this. I looked for it today because I would have said to Isabel uh, Vaughan Spruce, well, hang on a second, I've seen a video, but I, I couldn't find one. That sort of behaviour does go on in some southern states in the United States where evangelicals can get a little bit crazy outside clinics. And if you don't believe me, you will readily find such evidence on the internet. Isabel Vaughan Spruce. I can completely believe that when a woman decides, well, I'm going to have a termination, I can completely believe and accept that that lady is not being 
I, I hate to say evaluated, but that nobody is sitting down with the lady to try and determine why. What is it? Is it financial? Um, if it is, well, we can talk about this or that or support. Is it something else? Is it abuse? I can completely accept that as a reality that nobody is putting an arm around a woman and saying, listen, I'm not trying to stop you now, but let me give you some, um, you know, some information that um, you, you, you would prefer that you had, that later on you might be glad you read this information. I can believe that doesn't happen in this country. Nothing happens in this country. Uh, she spoke to Jacob Rees-Mogg on GB News yesterday. I know, I know. And Mogg made the point, amazing that six police officers turned up at the speed of light <laughs> to arrest this little lady. She's a very slight lady, slim lady, this little, you know, peaceful lady who's standing on her own in silent prayer, praying for, presumably she was praying for, I should have asked her, shouldn't I? I should have asked her, may I call, but presumably praying for the women going into the clinics to have a bit of strength, maybe. Presumably praying to God for an intervention, maybe. You know, because the sincerity shone out of that lady. And the police turn up, six of them turn up, six of them. <laughs> Again, I, I laugh not because there's anything funny about that. It's um, it's quite simply vaudeville, you understand. It is vaudeville, isn't it? This is one of my favourite songs of the last six months. It's Brucey. And it's his take on the Walker Brothers, The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore. This is gorgeous. It's an album of covers, soul music. Only the strong survive, Bruce Springsteen. That's uh, the sun ain't going to shine anymore. It's 13 minutes to the top of the hour. Lots of comments. Thanks for them, by the way. Live comment on richieallen.co.uk. James asks this. James is a Christian. He says, why are the powers that be not attacking Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, etc.? He says, in my opinion, Richie, it's because the powers that be do not see those religions as a threat. They do believe that those who believe in Christ are a threat, even though Christianity has become so, so diluted with different sects which cause confusion. The true teaching of Jesus isn't about Catholic, Protestant, which is divide and conquer. Prayer is powerful. Isabel is a warrior of truth. God bless her, says James. Thank you, James. David says, the news media seems to be over-exaggerating the weather warnings. Ain't they just? <laughs> yeah, they, they pretty much told us we'd be snowed under here in the northwest, and as it happens, we haven't. Not yet, anyway. Bit of sleet earlier on. Uh, David says, the weather warnings, and they're talking up the high danger of power cuts. I'm calling bullshit, says David. They're going to do power cuts and blame it on climate chaos. They might do, David. I hope they don't. Richard says, well done to Isabel and to her group. Lucy asks, praying is a crime? I saw a video a few weeks back. A group of Muslims were praying outside, if I'm correct. They were praying outside the Houses of Parliament. They were not arrested or moved on. Does anybody remember this? I don't, Lucy, but there's probably not a public space protection order around Westminster. Although there probably is, now that I think about it. Depends on where they were, I suppose. Uh, Dory says John Waters makes the point that's the great John Waters Irish writer 
said, and broadcaster, while the birth rate in Ireland is below maintenance level at 1.6 children per woman, they legalised abortion there. They did some years ago. Backbeat says the Met Police have long been weaponising against the populace and our right to free speech and lawful assembly. History will find this is the thin end of the wedge, the thin end of the wedge, much the same as the taxation of poor people. And it'll prove to be the catalyst for the revolts, uh, for the revolt of the peasants, like back in 1381. Christine asks a good question. Richie, I wonder would other faith groups be treated similarly? I doubt it, she says. The agenda goes back to undermining the family and undermining faith. Thank you, Christine. Pennywise says, Isabel has given me another perspective on the abortion issue. It is good to know there are people trying to offer help and support to women who are having to make such a terrible decision. Diane says this has bigger implications. Now gatherings at pagan sites can be banned. This is not about my Christian slash Catholic friends. It is about faith, says Diane. It is sinister. It is very sinister indeed, she says. Good point, Diane. You might very well be right there. Hazy says, if God is just the great spaghetti monster in the sky, why would they be scared or hate somebody who is praying? Steve says, the thought police as depicted in Orwell's 1984 novel, it's finally here, terrifying. I mean, it, it is. It's, it's literally, I hate, you know, I, I bitch about those who use terms like literate literally, when we should say maybe sometimes figuratively. But yes, policeman says, praying is the offence. Wow. I know. Wayne says, this is the most repulsive abuse of our most basic human freedoms. It's atrocious what Isabel has been subjected to. Is this how far we've fallen? No praying or freedom of thought outside of your designated zone. Those like Stella Creasy, Labour MP, and her fellow self-serving Westminster set, um, they place no value on people's freedom, nor on the sanctity of human life itself, as proven by their collective enthusiastic collaboration in the rollout of open tyranny in the last three years. Yeah, well put, well put. When I say well put, when I say well done, when I say thanks, it's not a personal endorsement. It's also not me saying that I disagree with it. Uh, very good comments. I, I really appreciate them. Dave says, this is Dave the nurse. Looking for foster parents seems to be an important option. I don't understand, as there is apparently a waiting list of years to take a baby, says Dave. That's interesting, Dave. Yes, but of course the abortion clinic only gets paid when the woman hands over the debit card or the credit card and then takes the tablets. So the, there is nothing in it for the abortion clinic to, you know, to say to the lady, are you absolutely sure now? And here is a brochure. There are other options. I mean, the abortion clinic is never going to do that. GPs should do that, I suppose. Family and friends, if you're lucky enough to have a good family, and if you're lucky enough to have reliable friends, they might say, well, hang on now. A minute there, Samantha, hang on. You know, we're... we're you don't have to do it. And if you want to keep the child, we're going to be there for you. We'll help. It takes a bunch of friends and it takes a couple of grannies and a couple of granddads to raise the child. Um, Shambhala says, the diabolical will always choose to be seen as incompetent over allowing their true evil to be put on display. Regarding Matt Hancock, 
This is about manufacturing consent. So the regime is seen as incompetent rather than truly evil. That's a good point as well. You know how many times over the years I've had conversations with people. It happens regularly. Somebody will find out about the radio show. It'll be somebody who I might see often. It might be a neighbour. It might be a dog walker. And often they will smile at me. Oh, I heard some of that stuff. Richie, you give these politicians too much credit, Richie. They're stupid. They're incompetent. You think they're clever enough to carry off these conspiracies, Richie. So Shambhala is right to make this point. For a lot of people, they will buy into this notion that they failed and they wrecked the economy and killed God knows how many people with their dodgy jabs. Well, they did that because they're a bunch of screw-ups, not because of any agenda. That's what people will say, you see. So that works, portraying themselves as absolutely, abjectly stupid. It does work. A lot of people go along with that. Yeah, they're thick. Oh, they're absolutely thick. Of course they are. Just look at the state of Matt Hancock. Good point. Jenny says, my bank closed down recently. I had to move my account. The new bank asked me where my savings had come from. So initially I replied, from mugging old ladies and drug dealing. (laughs) I was flabbergasted to be asked, says Jenny. Yeah, the cheek of them. Where did you get your money? None of your business. I'm moving it from the bank that has closed down. And I'm giving you the business. Take the business or piss off and I'll find another bank. Would be my response there. Jenny Bruce says the eye of the storm for us all is the extent of any rise in awareness. Is the raising awareness of significant numbers. Are we raising awareness in significant numbers of people? Bruce says I believe we have an 80-20 split with us on the wrong side of that. 20% of the people know what's going on. 80% don't says Bruce. Bruce, you might be right. And maybe I was speaking with David Sedgwick about this earlier on. Maybe there is an increasing number of people who do understand, or at least have begun to realise something is wrong, but are frozen. What do I do? If I take to social media, if I talk about these things, it could have, you know, a very negative impact on on me, on, on my place in the community, on my work. It could have a negative impact. So therefore, I will say nothing. Absolutely right. That's nearly it for today's programme, dear listener. Thank you to my guest, David Sedgwick. Do, please, do buy a copy. It's brilliant. I've got it here. It's very well written. Is that true or did you hear it on the BBC? David Sedgwick, you'll find it at good online retailers. You might have to buy it on Amazon. It's worth it. He's writing the sequel to it as we speak. And it was uh, lovely to meet Isabel Vaughan Spruce, the director of March for Life explained what it is her group attempts to do, which is to meet women who are going to an abortion clinic and just to say to them, there is, if you want to have a chat with us, there are other options. So, uh, yeah, enjoyed those two guests tonight. That's it for me. Back tomorrow, I've got a doctor. You're really going to want to meet him tomorrow. Really interesting doctor who's coming on the programme. I should name him now, shouldn't I? Do you know why I'm not going to name him and give you his name? It's because there are those who, if I do name him, they will contact him and try to talk him out of coming on the programme. Yeah, that's how it's going. It it isn't just one woman doing that. There are others in the so-called independent media now trying to talk guests out of coming on programmes like this. This programme with the biggest reach of any independent radio show in the world. Staggering, really. So I should tell you who the doctor is so that you can look him up and be excited about him coming on. 
but I can't. It's funny that, isn't it? How things are, are going in the so-called independent media, the truth or industrial complex. God, I have no time for it. You know the proudest thing for me? You know the thing I'm most proud of? I am associated with nobody. I have no affiliations whatsoever. I don't appear on anybody else's podcasts or programs. There's just me and you. Me and you. That's the Richie Allen Show. Associated with nobody. Wonderful. And that's how it'll always be. Just me and you. In a cave somewhere at the end it'll be. Going out with Go West. Thanks again to my guests. Speak tomorrow at five. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. And for people listening in Salford, tomorrow is bin day. Get your bins out, you lazy bastards.